How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 61. Ah. 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 You know what? You know what? What's up, Jake? 60 was pretty... That was uh, When we hit 50, that was a great number. When we hit yeah. 60, and of course the numbers are a little jumbled, we'll explain why later in the show, but when we hit 60, I was like, oh, that's pretty, that's a cool milestone. So you, I feel like you were more impressed at 60 than 50, but also... Which we is did, strange. We did 60 live, whereas 50 was a pre-record, so maybe it was that's hard true. to get excited about. That's true. Uh, something that's... It's tricky because, like, I mean, I think we talked about it with the first batch of pre-records mm. that we did over from episode, was it 40? It was, it was 50, 50 to 55. 55 yeah. Um, they were all recorded in, in out of order. So... Right, yeah. Um, sort of as we... Wa- we had the, the five films... Six. Six films yep. that we had in mind... Um, we listed them, but we did the records as we watched each film. Pretty much. But well, not in order. We recorded them in chunks of two. Yes. So we would record like three podcasts a week at times. Uh, but then <laughs> those groups of two would be in different orders sometimes. Yes. So, yes. yeah, which might explain. If, if you really pick those episodes apart and based on what we say and when we recorded them, like you could really figure out like, oh, that episode was recorded before... They saw The Irishman or something like that. Yes. Um, break it apart, but... Particularly, I think that you said there's one line that you completely had to retcon. There's something I said in episode 50... It was either 50 or 52 that I really regret. Yeah. I was like, oh, 2019's a pretty bad year in film. <laughs> I was like, and then you went on to go see what? Was, was Irishman, lot. Marriage Story, Parasite, Portrait uh, of a Lady on Fire. Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I Lost My Body, Uncut Gems, <laughs> The Lighthouse. Like, there was a lot of good shit that came out at the very end of 2019. But... Yeah. Um, well, that's farewell. probably going to be very similar to this year, too. Yeah, so is it worth bringing up front what, how the next few shows are going to go? I'd say so. Before we break into what we've watched in the week, we yeah. might as well preference the next couple of episodes. Right, so uh, of course this week uh, we're doing our ep- normal episode. We're going to do Invisible Man later in the show. But the next, I believe, four episodes are pre-records. They are. So Each I'm- featuring a guest. That's right. All four episodes have a guest. So that's yeah. quite exciting. So now, it's a little bit more di- like I feel like in the last block we had those six episodes and we tried to do lists or things related to said lists mm. whereas this time we've opted to go with guests. Yeah, well guests we've never had before as well. So uh, completely I'm- new original season 2 guests as you call it. Yes. <laughs> yes. I-, I like the idea of that season 2 guests. Yeah, it's cool. By and- season 3 we're just going to write ourselves out of the show. Yeah, on uh, oh, season three, we'll be getting like Martin Scorsese and stuff on the show. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's our trajectory right there. Yeah. But, um, and mm. what's cool about those those three guests is that they all sort of have a different, uh, they all have foots in different creative fields around Perth. So mm. it'll be cool as each week comes by, you get to meet a new person, new friend of the show, and find out what their field is and how it relates to the film of the week that they picked. Or they picked the. the films that they they talked about so. yeah and it's really funny yeah. i think i commented on one of the episodes with one of our guests that each film said a lot about the guests mm, without them even speaking so <laughs> um very interesting couple of weeks that's happening of but yeah sort of to compensate for you know events of the world too well that's the thing because the original plan of course was you were going to travel to nashville and th- this is going to get ultra weird because i think even though there's less pre-records that we had to do uh, than last time. This mm. was an ultimately much more complicated list of... Re- like, when we were recording three a week, we recorded more than three a week. 
just set for these four episodes. Oh, for sure. It got really complicated with the numbers and having guests on each one of them with different films. I think in the last two weeks we've recorded all all of the pre-records plus our weekly shows, right? So that's Gosh, six yeah, and two weeks. Yeah, we're looking weeks. around six and two. Jesus Christ. But, you know, we love our audience and we wanted to make it happen. But, yeah, because the original plan, of course, was you were travelling and the state of the world... Uh, doesn't want that to happen it's, anymore. It's funny. Um, I feel like we made a joke last week on the show, or at least on one of the, the earlier pre-records, mm. and it was very much... I was still, as we were doing them, looking like I was going to go away, but as of... Honky Town, you call it in one of the Honky episodes. Honky Town, yeah. Um, but as of <laughs> Friday, it's looking very apparent that I am not going. Yeah. So we're just going to have a few weeks off the show, I guess. Pretty much. You're going to know how I felt back in January. Yeah, so I mean... interesting. I, not to branch too much, it's not really career talk, but obviously we're going to take that time away from the show mm. to pursue, you know, put a bit more pressure on our own career stuff. Yeah. Um, we've definitely got focus points that we'd like to cover in our time away, and it's probably for the best even to have the pre-records in place, because the cinematic world is a little quiet right now. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, it really is a quiet place out there in cinemas. Mm. <laughs> Even though that got rescheduled little, to next that, year, right? That did, that did. And yeah, that, that Fast 9. Yeah. All um, rescheduled. Bond, all of that. I'm surprised Black Widow hasn't yet, but by the time we come back to recording live shows, I think episode 66 will be our next live recording. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see if that film bites the dust or not. Much like Peter Parker bit the dust... When he turned to dust uh, in Infinity War. That's a really weird callback, but um, <laughs> I think this is obviously a good conversation point before we get into like our regu- regular scheduled uh, planned show as normal. Our programming. Um, programming, yeah. <laughs> um, because obviously this is really a big time for streaming sites, really. Mm. Um, obviously, given the circumstance of the world, a lot of places in the world, Australia included, are not, uh, not opening public venues above 500 people. Um, and cinemas, I'm pretty sure, are going to follow suit and just shut completely, or at least I've the heard, larger ones. I heard that ones. earlier today. That like, Hoyt's, might Luna might stay open. Um, yeah. Well, Luna put out a notice the other day for email, and they were just like, yeah, if, if we see a coffin, I'm not going to be happy, but you're still welcome here, sort of thing. Mm. I mean, Luna is a smaller, <laughs> independent one. I don't know if Hoyt's will stay open. Um but obviously it's it's terrible for the cinema industry mm. um for yeah particularly the film industry in general um but this is obviously this is a big time for i think you know streaming sites you know yeah hbo go and yeah. stan and netflix and amazon and yeah i think removed from that it's a little unrelated but similar is that i think steam not stream steam uh, just had its most active user base of all time, like yesterday. Yeah. Like the same number of, like, 20 million un- users or something all on at once. That's insane. Oh, I want to pose this question to you, Jake. Okay. Um, do you think, because um, we obviously, there was a big oh, oh boy. Uh, <laughs> conversation about things like Irishman Uncut Gems and their distribution, um, okay. how they had their both cinematic and streaming platform distributions. Uh, do you think some of these movies, these films that have been delayed, may opt just to get put on Netflix rather than play I think, in cinema? Uh, would it happen, or do I think it should happen? Probably both. Okay, okay. give me okay. both answers. Okay. I think 
It's interesting you pose that because I know Disney have already started kind of doing this. I think mm-hmm. they dropped the digital version of Rise of Skywalker a few days early to compensate because obviously they've delayed Mulan, mm-hmm. uh, which is another uh, thing we're going to say in a pre-record soon that did not age well at all. But mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they also put out Frozen. Oh, I think they're going to put out Frozen 2 on Disney Plus like way earlier. You than always they put planned disclaimer to. up though when you do our yeah yeah yeah. Soon. I always so, so. It'll, it'll stand the test of time in that regard. Yes, but. Um, I think it's interesting because, you know, using those examples, I mean, Uncut Gems, that had its theatrical release in the US and then came to Netflix mm-hmm. in other regions in January. So that feels a bit more of a traditionalist release uh, schedule. But then you well, had things like Irishman. Irishman, which very much is a Netflix film and very few theatres got the sort of the balls to, to play it in cinemas for Mm -hmm. those three weeks leading up to it. And that became its own little political turmoil that I think we talk about on the Irishman episode we did. But in terms of, say, for example, like A Quiet Place Part 2, I could kind of see that happening where a Netflix swoops it up and does distribution plan. I mean, that the film would then get out if they were looking at... And I know it's kind of... We're in the graveyard shift anyway of award season. Mm. So generally films that come out at this time of year don't get much award recognition just because of yeah. their placement in the year. They're not looking for it if they come out in March, exactly. No. Um, but I like that's what I was sort of thinking about was like something like A Quiet Place Part 2 could quite easily get slotted on a, on a, on a Netflix. Not a year ago did Bird Box come out and it probably had, mm-hmm. you know, which had a very large horror, it was a horror film, large budget. So, and then that was a Netflix exclusive. Um, I think it could be a, an avenue. I don't think you'd ever see something like Bond get put straight to a stream. Yeah, it's not going to happen with Bond. It won't happen with Fast 9. Um, but it's going to be those smaller films that have their audience that better chance they're going to get snatched up digital. And I think that's where I sort of sit is why why wait potentially months, you know, to to put the film out in cinema when you could get the the you know the distribution rights. I mean, there's probably a lot of behind the scenes stuff involving the studios and releases. And- well, I imagine they they've already lost a ton of money just from having to change their marketing strategy and all the posters and just all the trailers mm-hmm. and everything they've put out that have that date that just isn't accurate anymore. That's a lot of money lost. And I don't know, at that point, it just depends which studio wants to recoup their losses more desperately. And I think if they wanted to recoup it, they just wait a little longer and do another theatrical distribution. They just find the right time to slot it. Because mm. I think as much as Netflix are known for giving out <laughs> hefty a lot of money to people, uh, I don't think they're going to... They're not going to give the a quiet place enough money to justify taking mm. it away from cinemas entirely. I guess, given the platform and the circumstance of the world, there is going to be like you brought up Steam. I imagine Netflix would probably be in a very similar boat. They probably good point. that this is probably one of the biggest times for streaming platforms because they're stay-at-home accessible things. Mm. Um, so maybe looking into trying to get some of those newer release films. You know, what about Tenant? You know, in a couple months, oh, if it's, God. Chris Nolan would shoot himself in the mouth before he lets that happen. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, like, just, I, I mean, I, I started thinking about that question and wanted to pose it on the podcast mm. simply because tomorrow uh, Westworld comes out, season okay. three, and yep. I sort of thought to myself, I'm like, man, this is a, ironically a really good time for something like Westworld to come out because it has the hype, mm. but it also has the accessibility. I was so thinking the same thing about Soul, where from a production standpoint, they're on hiatus, but from 
putting it out, it's on TV, you're right. Yeah. So there's no danger to watch that show. <laughs> no, exactly. So it's just, just food for thought. Yeah. yeah. No, it is interesting. I think in terms of capitalizing on the idea of them getting all their viewership right now, this as moment. A as a As a self-proclaimed <laughs> capitalist. <laughs> no, but from that standpoint, I think Netflix are just better off promoting their original shows. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's what's... Uh, it, by the time they get A Quiet Place 2 on Netflix, this uh, pandemic is probably going to have softened. Okay. Even if it takes a few weeks or a few months or however long it takes. Uh, it is an interesting question because you're right. It, it comes back to... There's a lot of people out there who just love the home experience of watching films. Yeah, more so and, than theatrical. It's not folly to, like, folly to say Netflix hasn't put out award-winning films mm. as its exclusives. I mean... In the last, like last year was a super year for streaming platforms, particularly Netflix. You know, they had Irishman, Marriage Story, Dolomite, yeah. uh, uh, Two Popes, yeah. if you're going to include like the Globes and all those sort of award yeah. winners. But yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's just a, something that might need to be reconsidered for films if this, the state of the world continues in the direction it's going. Well, I mean, the direction it's going is that the pandemic's going to chill the hell out eventually. I, it is kind of funny how we're very we're kind of tiptoeing around this virus right now. If you go to the pre-records, we're making jokes and cracking all sorts of shit, and it's like now you go, it's like oh, I don't know, guys, shit's going down. Well, I mean, we just <laughs> did a bunch of pre-records, assuming that I was going to be away, and now I'm that's not. True. So that's the state of the world right now. Yeah. No, um, exactly. It's it's affecting people in all sorts of ways. I don't think anyone would have expected. Um, just in terms of things closing down, not being able to travel, and. Like, a lot of stuff that seems obvious on the surface, but, you know, it really does trickle down, so it's very interesting. So, I mean, the fact that we it's we struggle to buy toilet paper now, like, yeah. that's, like, insane. I, mean, I just wanted to take the current... And we often should always take the context of the world that we're in and try and, uh, you know, reevaluate it. And I just feel like there is a conversation to have. And, of course, this <laughs> being a film podcast, mm. I had to ask, where do we sit with the film impact, like, on this, you know, area of the industry? Um and I think it's a good conversation point and a good thing to reconsider given how many films have now pulled out of the next month and a half of releases. Mm-hmm. Well, throughout the year, really. Yeah. Yeah, if you go as far as... Well, I mean, Bond's been pushed to the end of the year, but Fast got pushed into 2021, you know? Yeah, I, I feel like... I mean, the only reason they're pushing there is because they don't want... they The, the Fast movies have always been released around roughly the same time and they've always been released in that sort of summer blockbuster yeah. slot. And if they miss that, if they get put in like, uh, you know, ironically at the end of the year where it's sort of more the award season uh, part, the uh, right. they just won't get as much money. Yeah. They, it's a tried and tested formula with the fast movies. They know when they need to be released and if they can't be released in that slot, too bad, <laughs> wait till the next year. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. It goes back to what I was saying where they either find a right time to just move the date mm-hmm. or like, I mean, Mulan and... Uh, those films don't have dates at all right now. They're in complete hiatus. Mm-hmm. They're shelved. So, I mean, those are the films you're going to see go to Netflix potentially. Or well. Disney Plus. Or Disney Plus, exactly. Um, I think Mulan going to Disney Plus is actually very likely. I think so too. It's actually I very, mean, very likely. You look at things like, was a Lady in the Tramp was released on mm, Disney Plus? It's an original, yeah. yeah. So, it, it wouldn't surprise me. And I mean, Disney can afford... I mean, they've closed Disneyland, so there you go. Yeah. Uh, Making that Marvel uh, park, theme park. 
wonder if Scorsese's going to go to that one. <laughs> All right. On a less somber note, let's go into the films that we've watched in the last week. Indeed. Um, back to our regu- regu- regular scheduled programming. That's the one. Well, Zeke, I considering all the films that I watched to prepare for the pre-records, there's only one film that I can actually talk about this week. <laughs> and it's not even one of any sort of relevancy. Mm. Um, so this week I watched Snatch, which of course Guy Ritchie. Guy Ritchie. And, uh, I think it's, I mean, it's of some relevance. Gentleman came out earlier this year. That's true, and I did. It is interesting because I did see Gentleman a few weeks ago uh, by myself in an empty mm-hmm. lunar cinema. So perfect conditions for any potential yeah, pandemics. Absolutely. Um, and I actually kind of like the Gentleman a bit better, to be honest. Like I love Brad Pitt, <laughs> and I, I think Snatch is a much more quotable film. But um, you you kind of hype me up on the use the excessive use of the c word because I think it's only used like <laughs> once in Snatch. Yes. Gentlemen, it's like fucking... It's a whole new train, I'm telling you. But um, I generally like Gentlemen more. I just had more fun with it in terms of the characters and the way they mix their narrative structure around mm-hmm. this guy using a script as blackmail. And I think Snatch... I mean, Snatch is great and it has fun characters, but I think it was a little more basic and just, okay, here's two intercutting storylines mm-hmm. and uh, there you go. And it was fun. But it wasn't that memorable otherwise, other than the quirky lines. Very I guess. interesting take on it. Yeah. I still think I stand by Locked Stock and Two Smoking Barrels being my favourite of those Guy Ritchie films. Mm. Um, but Snatch would be my second, probably followed by Gentleman. And then Rock and Roll is like, eh. Yeah, there's uh, definitely an energy to that film I can't deny. It's like excellently crafted. Oh, for sure. But I just, I, I watched it and I was like, okay, and moved on. Like, I'm glad I watched it, but. I'm not going to remember it too well in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the last week, I've caught, much like you, a couple of our pre-recorded related films that we won't discuss on this show. Mm. Um, well, that's the thing. If you guys go on our letterbox right now and look at what we've been watching, you might get some clues into what kind of films we'll be talking about in the next few yeah. weeks. I'm at ZKMH, I think, on Letterboxd. I think I'm Jake the Clicker. I'm not sure. Well, we, um, ju- we just passed Danny our details. I should remember my bloody... I am Jake the Clicker. There you go. Yeah, and I'm Beautiful. Zeke MH. Um, <laughs> this, so, is a, this is a cinema sidechip podcast. This is a <laughs> um, so I did manage to catch a few films, excluding the uh, films that we'll be covering in our pre-records. Yep. Uh, I caught Noah Bombok's The Squid and the Whale. Very which, nice. Uh, I've just really come to the realisation Bombok loves New York. He's like Woody Allen. He just films a lot of stuff in New York. Is it very filmy, half the cast of script writers? Is that kind of yeah. like... Yeah. <laughs> yep, 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 okay. They're both uh, literary writers <laughs> yep. rather than... Yeah, okay. Uh, so, um, and it's Jeff Daniels and a very young Jesse Eisenberg. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, it's... I, I really enjoyed it. I, I sat on a four stars for it. It's Ooh. He has very tight... I like... He actually has a lot of films that he's kept to just about 80 minutes, which I really like. Nice and tight. Um, tight. And I think it comes back to what you said about his writing style. He has very fluid characters. There's a lot of lines. There's... Um, it's mumblecore, as you yeah. as you put it, um, which is that type of subgenre. Little, and little teasing so for future 80 minutes episodes. was probably like 120... Uh, pages probably or something like that I reckon but no it was a really wait strong... 120 pages for 80 minutes oh wait, 80... no wait that would 80... be nuts that would be nuts that'd be two hours holy crap okay probably about 100 pages for okay. 80, 80 minutes I reckon but um, it, it, it it's obviously a film about joint custody <laughs> um, and divorce mm. which are well, very sounds, similar that sounds familiar <laughs> thematic devices for Bombok I think Definitely Marriage Story covers it better. I still stand by that being his best film to date, but 
there's there's a yeah. lot in here and a lot of relatable concepts of the it's about two sons going through this sort of custody battle between and it's sort of how Eisenberg is the older of the two and um sort of just the <laughs> dynamic between the father and the, and the mother mm. i i think this one feels it's tricky because I actually think Marriage Story has a perfect balance of balancing both parties. I feel like this one favors more on um, him on the male yeah. counterpart, which is a bit of a shame because it's just not as uh, interesting if it's or it's like, a victimizing one, one and yeah. putting the blame on the other. No, I I think that definitely came with time and reevaluation of of a divorce that he gets the Marriage Story. It's like okay, let's let's equalize the playing field a bit. Yeah, so I can see that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I also managed to watch uh, a really intriguing film that I don't think I just... You, sometimes you're just in the mood for a just good old MA rom-com. Oh, okay. um, sleeping cheeky. with Other People, which is the Jason Sudeikis, Alison Ooh, Brie. That, that's something I don't do. <laughs> Oof. Um, uh, yeah, Gross. and it's the uh, Jason Sudeikis, Alison Brie uh, rom-com from uh, Leslie Headland, who uh, hasn't done... Too much else. She's only directed a film called Bachelorette that is on Netflix. I oh, probably yeah. will give it a watch because this one was fine. I really enjoyed nice. it. Um, really strong performances from... And I feel sorry for kind of... Alec, like, I've really grown this year to Jason today because I was always very uh, indifferent about him. Yeah. Um, but both him and um, Jason Bateman, I feel like... Both of them have I've warmed to with age. Mm. Um, he, more Sudeikis in his more serious roles, I actually really enjoy. Um, I think Kodachrome I talked about earlier in the in the year, I really enjoyed. Um, but this one was a little bit more lighthearted. But there was definitely enough uh, meat in this sort of this comedy okay. about these two people that lost their virginity together in in college, mm-hmm. and then don't see each other for another. <laughs> 15 years and then bump into each other again i think so it's like the more kind of uh, cheeky cheeky blue jay yeah yeah way more lighthearted than blue jay (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah no really good um it's good to see alison brie in a performance where i actually enjoyed her um and the film wasn't confusing right okay in a post horse girl world um but i don't know she just doesn't seem to get very she just has never seemed to land any real depthy roles, I think, po- in a post-community kind of breakout world. Mm. Um, and we've seen actors from TV shows of that sort of community, Parks and Rec era, people like Chris Pratt, who have actually managed to break away from their sort of TV roots, but I just I haven't seen yeah, her do it, really. I, I think with Chris Pratt, it's more of the superstar role. Like, I don't really... I don't see him doing a Manchester by the Sea sort of performance just yet. It's true. And then with Alison Brew, you can't argue Diane with Bojack's pretty complicated character, but it it goes back to how many people have seen that compared to somebody like a Chris Pratt filmography. Yeah, um, I think actually, yeah, her most meaty roles have actually been her voice acting roles. Mm. I think that and even in Lego Movie as Unikitty, which is <laughs> like... They've, they've both got their, their places. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, that's that also, I think, is not where I want to see her future go. I want yeah, to see her on screen. Or, yeah. Yeah. Rather than a voice actor role. Um, not saying her, her role as Diane in, in Bojack. We've talked about Bojack very much a lot on this show. And I think she definitely is great in that. And they do a really good, uh, episode with her, probably one of the best episodes in the show with her going back to her roots and mm. sort of about identity and stuff. But yeah, she just, 
she hasn't found that one role yet where I'm like, okay, this is sort of, and I feel like the, you know, she's good on Glow too uh, in that show. Yeah, but, but she's the lead, eh? Yeah, she's the, yeah one of the lead ladies, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think I just need, I feel like she's capable of being pushed into that sort of mainstream conversation, but just hasn't found the role yet. Is it going to be in TV or film when she does it? When she finally does it. I Luke. hope it's film, yep. but I reckon it'd probably be back in TV, to be honest, maybe yeah. in a bigger role on be TV. some meaty drama or something. Yeah, but um, so I managed to catch that and I caught one another film. You only caught... That, that was it. That was it. Snatched. Okay. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> I could talk uh, about Snatched some more. <laughs> did manage to watch before, uh, just as a sort of... I normally do my drink to cringe, but thankfully... This week, it wasn't a cringy... Well, it was cringy in a different, a funny way rather than a, okay. in a bad way. Uh, I managed to watch Team America World Police for the first time. What? Yeah. You've never seen Team no. America World Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? So, um, yeah, you never seen it before. my mind. Um, thank you, Jake. Uh, oh, my God. I've never caught it. Never watched Jesus it. Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, and I watched that last night. For the first time, and I'm not a big, so I haven't watched a lot of South Park. Right. Um, I watched the South Park movie, uh, bigger, longer, and uncut, and um, I enjoyed that. I know it got it got nominated for an Oscar, didn't it? And I think a song or something. Yeah, 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 for a musical number. And um, I've always been fascinated. Like I'm well aware of what. Team America was and what it's about. It's typical American satire. Um, and I really like the use of the puppets. I think that's a real big homage, I think, to Thunderbirds. It completely uh, is. And yep. the idea that now they think about it, Thunderbirds were basically world police. They kind of just came and <laughs> saved the day anywhere around the world. Um, so I, I just something about that I really like. I can't believe you've never seen this movie. It was that really, blows my it was fucking really mind. Funny. Like, like even in today's world, a lot yeah. of that stuff is um, aged pretty pretty well. Yeah. Um, they have a really good <coughs> way of tackling those big issues. They are I have found them in later years to be a bit hit or miss. I think. Um, a lot of people talk about their sort of their Trump storyline that mm. they had, and it sort of bit them bit them on the ass when he actually got elected. Uh, they pretty much had to rewrite uh, an entire season of TV overnight, uh, essentially, because Trump won. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that um, I think they're sometimes a little bit too uh, focused on the the current world, so a lot of their older stuff doesn't it doesn't have the same thing like t- Simpsons does. You can't right. go back to it season... doesn't feel as universal. I see. Yeah, that. like I've gone back to things like in season six or seven when everyone's like the shows at its peak, but they're making jokes that are relevant in two thousand and six. So mm. it's like I I get why they <laughs> became famous and their their appeal, but they don't have the things that like Simpsons had. You can't go back and watch season three, I think, and it being as funny as that if you watched an episode of Simpsons from season three. Mm. Because most of that stuff's pretty timeless because they make jokes sort of in world rather than exterior like pop culture of <laughs> reference. Yeah, humor. exactly. And that, that even when it does sort of go out of world, they, they find some clever way to make it, even those jokes feel timeless. Yeah. So, you know, jokes about corrupt politicians, you're never not going to know what those jokes mean. So, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, watching the film, I really did enjoy the film. And actually, honestly, some of the like the production design, it felt like there was like some serious effort put into it. Oh, and man, they went nuts getting that film made. 
and I loved uh, there there are jokes that don't like don't age well if you don't really understand like like the main dude being in lease which is a joke on rent <laughs> and I like no, I'm not sure that I was would work more as well. About the the sticking the hair on the face. <laughs> I think that still works. It's so funny. It's man. so wrong. But oh my god! I think I, I they walk a really good. I just look at my, the Michael Moore cameo. <laughs> like, I had to rewatch that after watching his docos not that long ago. I just went back to YouTube and rewatched his scenes. It's so funny. And like I've been quoting Matt Damon for like twenty years, I swear to God. Yeah, I just, so funny. I find it funny that he like Michael Moore interviewed Trey Parker and Matt Stone in Bowling for Columbine, yeah, and like yeah. <laughs> it's just like this is his reward, looking <laughs> like this fat slob. Uh, well, that's the whole story. Is is they interviewed him for for um the nine eleven no Columbine Columbine. You're right. Um, and then they pretty much juxtapose it with a cartoon that looks very much like they made it, but they had nothing to do with it. And it actually kind of goes against their own views about how they viewed all the, the mm. gun history and stuff in America. So, they're right. That was a complete response to, fuck you for doing that really? to me. So, I'm going to put you in my film, make you look like a complete turd. <laughs> Interesting. So that's, that was the whole South Park. Well, um, so, they, they don't America get along story. with each other. No, they hate each other now. Right. right so, that's, that's how that whole thing started. Yeah, I have my but, problem yeah. with Michael Moore documentaries. I think they're incredibly... <laughs> they almost feel immature at points. They're but, interesting. Um, Not high-production YouTube videos these days, but you, you got to respect where they came from. <laughs> I love that. They kind of are, though. They kind of are. <laughs> I want to say, though, about Team America, the first time I had seen any frame of this film, mm-hmm. this was like, God, I would have been maybe 10 or 11 years old. And I had a, no, I must have been at least 13 because I had a TV in my room. Mm-hmm. That would have been like a birthday thing. And I was I was channel surfing at like three in the morning because I just couldn't sleep. And the first thing that comes up on whatever channel it was, mm-hmm. was this puppet just throwing up for five minutes straight. <laughs> I've never been a big fan of toilet humor. And oh, I can't say but, I found that, that scene particularly funny. But, but like just the shock of that being the first thing. I'm like, what the hell is... And I just watched it from that point on to the end of it. I was like, this is so funny. I just like things like the Mount, the Mount Rushmore base yeah, was yeah. just really funny. Or like... They just go everywhere they go, they just destroy everything. They're like, thank you, you're welcome. <laughs> it's just it's really funny. Uh, and admittedly, brilliant. That, that sex scene, although it went on a little oh, too Jesus long, Christ. is really funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one for their shitty on each other. It's like, oh my God, man. It's so funny. It was, yeah. That fucking film is I, timeless. I walked, I walked away with a positive, uh, a positive take on it. Um, yeah. The Kim Jong Il song, I'm Romley. <laughs> <laughs> It was. It was. Uh, it's not, see, his gotta, voice in the face well, of, of a crisis and a pandemic, you sometimes just gotta laugh at the world. Did you watch that with Morgs? I Is did. That, that, yeah. Oh, he's like, he's like the perfect person to watch that movie. First with. time he ever watched it either. What? Oh yeah. my! F- you guys. <laughs> yeah. You guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, uh, do you, oh, do we Christ, have anything yeah. we'd like to add in our career section this week? Um. Yeah. Sure. Why not? I mean, well, that's the thing. The next four episodes, we're not gonna be able to. Yes. comment on it but uh i'm currently i'm still writing the feature i'm getting there i'm getting yep. there zeke i'm in the i'm in the final funnel point so i'm about here's here's the scary thing so i'm 107 pages in mm-hmm. and we're just talking about 
script pages to minute conversion, which is generally page a minute. Yeah, and it's kind of terrifying because I'm at like I'm I'm writing this thing that's meant to be roughly an hour and forty seven minutes into the film. Mm-hmm. I'm like Jesus Christ, this shouldn't be happening this late. And we've talked about it being a first draft, and it's gonna you write sort of everything you've got mm-hmm. in that first draft, yeah. and then you start slicing away, you start showing it to people, start to give it the focus points. That yeah. Needs, yeah. Well, that's the thing. I showed you... I think it's the first time you saw anything. You read maybe half a page the other night, mm-hmm. um, which is great, because I know one of your feedback points was that the dialogue felt very realistic. So I was like, okay, good, I'm nailing that. But then with realistic dialogue comes in just a lot of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, which eats up pages, and that's just yes. how it is. So, But it goes back to the, the Donald Bumbach sort of mumble coughing we were just talking about where you could see the page, the, the script being much bigger mm. than the cut of the film that it sort of became into. Yeah. So it's it's interesting to talk about from that standpoint. But, um, yeah, and again, we'll talk a bit about more Mumblecore in our pre-records. You get a little bit of more of an idea of what... Just a bit of a tease. A little bit of a tease for you. Um, and what's cool, I'm in the early stage. I don't remember if I mentioned this, I guess, because we didn't do careers uh, section last week. So... I'm guessing, it, basically, okay, two things I'll tease. Mm-hmm. How's that? Two things we'll tease. Two whole things. Mm, two whole things. So, in terms of multimedia sort of outreaching for good old Clicker Productions, so we do sort of have a foot in potential uh, further DVD information regarding films that are not exactly ours. So, let's just put that out there for the audience to... A little bit of a nibble on, mm. and um, also the world of fiction podcasts may be in discussion with certain parties. Whoa, but, uh, whoa! But uh, this is stuff we might not learn about for another like six months. So, but I'm just throwing it out there. The yeah. seeds have been planted, so to speak. That's some intriguing seeds right mm. there. <laughs> well, is there anything you want to kind of tease or get into? Um, I, I'm also writing my my feature. It's it's slow arduous process but maybe a few slow weeks cooker, away slow cooker there might be something to really talk about um i'm sort of like in my head wanting to write a feature and then write a short and mm. go the avenue of make the short right then make the feature move into the feature but um, without spoiling anything about the plot mm. i feel like we've kind of already done that in a way yeah um I think we we did an uh, something in that ballpark, but I don't know if it <coughs> captures the same tone. Okay. That the current film. I too will be doing a film that probably will be sitting more in the mumblecore genre too. I think to do with a lot of, but maybe more. I don't know if I will actually. I think mine will be more akin to. I don't, yeah, I don't see yours as sort of not that. as back and forth. No, I think yours. Is quite. Uh, it's ironic you brought up Blue Jay as one of your inspirations because I feel mm. like that also would fit in one of my inspirations, but oh. maybe for a completely different reason. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, I can see it. I can see it. And the audience should know that we know each other's plots. Yes, but we're not telling you guys just yet. You naughty, naughty audience. Um, <laughs> I think that's the other thing. Um, as much as I would, I want to like keep people updated on the evolution of the idea. I don't know if I want to make everything completely public until there's something worth making public about. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, that's the thing, because things always like either change, more fall apart, build up. You know, There's so much that happens 
between now and when the script's finished or a shoot's ready to go. So exactly. Um, it's good to keep it vague in that sense. And I think that's that's the way I'd want to go. I think this is a film that I've wanted to write about. But, yeah, I think I'd love to go... Because generally, um, there are multiple ways you can go about making a feature. You can just straight up make the feature, get the funding through crowdfunding or whatever. But generally speaking, in our sort of industry, it is good to do um, a short and then... Mm use that as an ad, if that's successful, use that as an avenue to make the feature where you can expand on the core ideas that are set in the short and then move it into a feature. Um, mm-hmm. One of the pre-records is going to play into that quite well. Yeah, it's... Short ex- into feature. One of the films we did, uh, that's, that was their exact pr- approach. So, yeah. There you go. And I think maybe I'd like to tackle that approach with this, this feature idea. Mm-hmm. I'd like to write the feature and be like, all right, now break this down into a 10-minute short. And then, yeah, basically go go from there. And if people like the sort of content that's in that 10-minute short, then move it into... Uh, a feature territory. A feature territory. But, yeah. yeah. Would you snip out a specific scene or would you have to mould things? I feel like I'd mould. Okay. I feel like I'd, I'd take a specific setting or scene but kind of condense information in it. Um and I think that's doable with okay. my script. It might be a bit tricky, but we'll have a look. If have a little looksy looksies. That's all. That's all in a post finishing writing the feature world. <laughs> that's exactly um, right. But yeah. yeah, no exciting times ahead. Hopefully, maybe when by the time we return back to live episodes, uh, we'll have more to add to that oh, fire but discussion. I like until it. Until like then, I think it's time to move into the film of the week, Jack. Absolutely. I but like what it. are we watching? This week on the show, we're watching The Invisible Man when? 2020. <laughs> Adrian? He was a sociopath. He said that I could never leave him. He controlled how I looked and what I wore. Then I was controlling when I left the house. And eventually, what I thought. After staging his own suicide, a crazed scientist uses his power to become invisible to stalk and terrorise his ex-girlfriend. And when the police refuse to believe her story, she decides to take matters into her own hands and fight back. This film was directed by Lee Whannell and, uh, yeah, stars Elizabeth Moss and Mm. some other people. <laughs> Some uh, other people. Well, to be fair, that she's the only kind of name. She's definitely yeah the the well the protagonist. Yes, she is. Um, Lee Winnell, obviously of Upgrade, uh, mm. success or fame. Yeah, I definitely. Guess. Yeah. Um, we all we did no Upgrade wasn't no we, a title episode. No, but we've talked about it a few times on the show, and I I really enjoyed it, and I know you guys, you and Jack yeah. especially, really enjoy it. Oh, so. for sure, for sure. Um. He's an Australian director. Yeah, that's um, it. And I think Upgrade was made in Melbourne, if I'm... I think so. At least I, parts were. I think it was definitely shot here, and I remember they had to, to simulate, like, American roads because they had to shoot in the wrong lanes for, like, a yes. lot of the chase scenes and stuff like that. So that was an uh, interesting little factoid. So, obviously, following his action sci-fi success, he's opted to go the horror route, mm. sort of a... Well, I believe Universal approached him with a pitch... To do the Invisible Man, haha! It's an intriguing one. That's obviously, what I read, yeah. it's another one off the Blumhouse assembly line of horror <laughs> films. <laughs> assembly uh, line, it's true. It is true. I mean, now they don't even put Blumhouse; they just put BH and then do the house logo. 
Yeah. They're like, you know who we are. It's like when I sign my name on contracts, I'm just like, JD. And they're like, what? And they, you know. Yeah, yeah I'm like, <laughs> yeah, you know. You guys know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this film has been uh, receiving pretty positive praise. Mm, I think uh, it's in the early 90s on the on Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes. Tomatoes. It's I sitting mean, on about 70 on Metacritic. Okay. So, I know it's letterboxed average is closer to four stars. Yes. So yeah. we're going to have a hot take here, aren't we, yeah. Jake? <laughs> Well, I was like, what did what was your well? We saw this, but right before we recorded our last episode, we said we mentioned it on the, the show. Ocean's Eleven episode. So we've had six days, six to seven days to digest what we saw. Mm-hmm. Zeke, what did you think of the Invisible Man? I did not enjoy it at all. <gasps> no way. Um, and I'm a big fan of Elizabeth Moss, um, but this film was messy and had more holes than the Titanic. <laughs> and um yeah it was just a really obviously this time of year for the last couple of years has been really good for horror films Mm. uh you know you have the jordan peele ones the get outs the us and then we talked about a quiet place which also came out roughly around this time in 2017 i think yeah i think you're right 2017 and that obviously john krasinski's film did actually receive a lot of praise and obviously we're now given his success on upgrade off a very low budget but very impressive sci-fi film Mm. with some really interesting uh techniques which really helped in that film offered absolutely nothing in this film Mm. i'll say I, I I'm trying to lean a bit more on the fence here because I know a lot of people love this film and I was I love the first half of this film and the opening scenes pretty impeccable actually I think but the more and we, of course we watched this together mm-hmm. fairly empty cinema and it was just one of those things where a lot of the pieces just stopped making sense after a while and and I think a lot of my specific complaints are going to be in spoiler territory so we'll. Considering this is a relatively new film, we'll give that a minute. Mm-hmm. But um, <clears throat> in terms of the way that he uses his camera and upgrade, I actually think there were elements of cleverness that he used sort of those rigs and the way he uses the camera there in this film mm-hmm. and the very clear analogue of how oh, this is sort of, yeah, an analogue for domestic abuse and violence against women. I thought a lot of that was actually very clever, but it all sort of crumbles under the absurdity of what the film tries to do in the second half. Yeah, particularly in that second half of the film, I found myself getting increasingly frustrated. Um, I think he's actually a really talented action uh, director. Mm. I think I would love to see what he could do with something more in the... You know, it's funny, we talked about... I don't know if Guns Akimbo has come out or has been delayed as a result. No, it's, it's, it's out. out. It's, it's out, out. Right now. I'd like to see him more in a quirky action sort of environment. Mm, okay. I, think he'd sit I don't think he'd be, like, in the John Wick sort of school, but more the quirkier right. action sort of stuff. I think Upgrades is as close to John Wick as he's going to get. Yeah. Where there's a bit more of a mechanical side to his action. Yes. But I'm, I, I think you're right. If we were to do something a bit more fun on the action side, it would be mm-hmm. interesting to see. But this, The Invisible Man, this is not a concept or a film idea I wanted to see done as an action film. And there are parts of this film that, that are an action mm-hmm. film, and it just feels so out of place. And I think it comes back to, uh, obviously, this film, like you said, is an analogue for domestic violence. But just because a film has a... Good intention and a, and a deep undercurrent meaning to it doesn't necessarily automatically make it a good film. Mm. Um, you know, I talked about the success of sort of these February, March uh, 
horror films that have come out in the last couple of years, and Jordan Peele does have that really good. And we were very divisive on our Us podcast about how we felt about the film. Well, but you still liked it, generally. I liked it enough, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, definitely liked it more than this film. Um, I think the <laughs> messages in that and analogues in that are definitely not only more apparent, but more justified and more meaningful. And it's, like, it's even more, you know, improved in the Get Out film where the messages are really seeded in this horror concept, which is sort of what horror films, or at least a percentile of them nowadays, are starting to offer up. They're starting to offer up that depth. They're starting to literally make their way into awards conversations. Mm. Um, and that's that's insane to think about in the last... Like, that's only happened maybe the last decade, especially, uh, yeah. towards... I mean, you had your very rare instances of, like, The Exorcist, but, like, up, you're right, up until now it has been... Mm. It's it's up there with superhero films with those type like do you not get awards recognition? No, and, and when it's starting to change a little bit, it is starting to change. And obviously, a film like this has obviously got the intention there of kind of sitting in that conversation. This film is not a fun slasher horror. It's mm. not Michael Myers walking around, walking in their rooms and just cutting people's throats because he can. Well, there um, are so there is some of that. Um, perhaps yeah but um i <laughs> think just went for his throat when i said that <laughs> yeah um i don't know i just think that uh some of the character motivation was really inconsistent some of the uh psychological warfare as per se mm. done to elizabeth moss's character was uh good but also for the characters around her really made them look really dumb at times. Like, I mean, I feel like I'll be able to elaborate a bit more on my frustrations when we break yeah. into the spoiler territory of this conversation. So, yeah, well, I think I think to start with, let's talk a bit about maybe just the general premise of the story because, of course, this is based uh, based on a very old IP, and there is the original nineteen, I believe, nineteen thirty three film. Yes, and there is a series about that, and I I unfortunately didn't get a chance to watch that or any of that leading up to this podcast, I did see clips of how the Invisible Man himself is sort of displayed with bandages wrapped around. So you get the physical presence from a filmmaking standpoint. That's how they shot it. Although it was really... The effects looked really cool when he's unpeeling himself the bandages and there's nothing there. And, of course, that was the the version of green screen that they had to use in the 30s. It's mm -hmm. just the same equivalent that they would have done now if they did then. Yeah. But it looked really great. And I was like, oh, this looks cool. And it's a little campy. Like, they had the Invisible Man running around in a circle around a chair and all the cops are, like, chasing after him. So it's a little more campy than what we got in this film. But and I kind of liked the originality of that. Yeah, and Winnell clearly has a fascination with sci-fi and technology, and both in both of his films, mm. um, it's very very apparent that he likes that sort of futuristic, clean look. Yeah, um, and he even takes the concept of the Invisible Man and makes it very sci-fi heavy. <laughs> um, so it's sort of, I mean, it, it's it'd be wrong to say it's a sci-fi horror, but it's a horror with sci-fi elements. Yeah, pretty. Uh, just like upgrades an action film with sci-fi elements, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think an upgrade. It's definitely more a sci-fi action film, I'd say, because mm. you know there are things like the I guess, futuristic cars yeah. and all of the. It's very. It's set in the future, so yeah. it's a sci-fi action. Whereas this one is set in the modern day, but has elements that are out of science fiction, i.e., the Invisible Man's uh, 
way of being invisible. Yeah, exactly. They established from from the very first scene that uh, the the way of modernizing the idea of Invisible Man is to make it tech. Yes, and that is a part of it is the way. And I think I don't know how much of this is spoiler because I didn't watch any of the trailers or anything like that leading into the film. I mean, we can break into spoilers now. I think. Yeah, got, I think. Um, uh, I don't know if I can recommend this film. It's definitely tricky. I think between the two of us, we actually both gave it two and a half stars. Yeah. Which, for me, that's sort of a, it's okay, but I wouldn't recommend it. I don't know if I would recommend this film. No. Uh, if it was on Netflix and you got nothing else to watch, you want to watch a horror. Yeah. Yeah. I think but, there's enough clever elements in here to make it curious. Yeah. But there's I, a lot of harm moments Yeah, as well. a lot of harm and why are you doing that? And, sometime, and <laughs> the fact of the matter is... Uh, there is that frustration sometimes with horror, particularly like 80s camp horror where like characters just do things to get themselves in the way of the slasher monster. But this film's not trying to be a slasher horror film. It's trying to be something bigger than that. It's trying to be... Uh, it's more psychological for yeah, sure. Yeah, it's definitely trying to, you know, emphasise sort of that, like those analogues for domestic <laughs> violence. So you can't sit back on it and be like, oh, it's a horror, but then tell me, oh, it's got this deep message. You know, I can't. it's got to be one or... It, can't, well, I don't think it could be one or the other. I feel like... I mean, the most clever horror films do have very clear underlining messages. Yes. But, but you can't use that as... What I'm saying, you can't use that as a counter to the argument. Like, oh, we'll stop overthinking it. It's a horror. You know, if they're, if, if they're saying to me, oh, this has got really good messages and it's really well handled and... Because... Yeah. Well, it just goes bad. Like, if we're talking about an 80s slasher film... And then, okay, something like, oh, that character, that's a bit of a silly decision for that character. Mm-hmm. But it's like, I don't think they amount to the, the, the plot-related issues that we have with this film. And I think, well, let, let's just start out with, so we're in spoiler territory now. Yep. Let's call it. Uh, so you got Cicela, who's obviously the main girl. We established early on that she's gotten out of this uh, abusive relationship. But and now all these strange occurrences, she thinks that there is an invisible mm-hmm. presence uh, either represented by him or it is him in the house. And I think that's the thing. I love the first half of this film because a lot of that's done really well at first. Mm-hmm. This is what I wanted out of this film was the cool, like, oh, did you miss that? Like little things around the environment moving or her trying to pull the, the carpet off. And there's a clear footprint that's stopping her from pulling it. And I actually really like the way that they got all the characters to be like, ah, oh. like they don't trust her because it mm-hmm. is such an absurd concept. Even though she says early on, oh, well, He's a tech genius. He can afford this. So mm. we have the motivation. She has the motivation, but her friends don't necessarily. Yeah. Um. I think the first moment I was a little confused is when Cecilia, she escapes the compound and her sister comes and rescues her only to have him <laughs> sprint out from the the pine forest area nearby and punch through the window. Right. And I feel like... They don't really... First off, that, that sister character is woefully underwritten. Um, <laughs> she's and a bit silly. She's a, She is probably <laughs> the most frustrating character because she's so uh, passive in that scene. Even after he smashes the window, she's still kind of like, what is going... Okay, I'm going to drive off now. Yeah. Um, doesn't feel very reactionary. I mean, that dude just punched through your window. He's got blood in his hand. He's trying to grab your sister. I feel like there needed to be more... This guy's a maniac, and yeah. I, I think that um, it was very confusing because they didn't really like that. You're clear, like this guy's clearly like that's that's p- 
police worthy, you know, and they didn't go to the police or anything. Like, there's no fallout from that scene. Mm. It just cuts to two weeks later, and then they're like, oh, be chill, he's killed himself. Um, yeah. Th- there's the emotional... Uh, I guess there is the emotional leftover of that scene, but I think you're right in the sense for two reasons. Number one, you're right. There's a certain amount of, oh, how long's the camera going to stay on this mm. moment to create tension before we drive away versus how long would this character realistically not drive away before mm-hmm. she's deemed an idiot? And I think you're right. It does lean a little towards that. I Even though I think the first thing is excellent, excellent, excellent. But and, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I have problems with that too because it follow, it, they follow it up two weeks later and they're basically like, okay, well, what did he do to you? And then Cecilia sits down, Elizabeth Moss's character, and explains that she was a victim of domestic abuse mm. and he was like this control freak. And unfortunately, I think his impact in the scene prior is actually kind of frustrating because it really establishes that he's indeed a threat. Whereas if it was just her account, there's definitely more, there's openness to the doubt of her truth, I guess. Okay. Um, And I think that would have worked better in the later parts of the film when he starts to sort of psychologically torment her and the people around her. Because up until that point, all of her, all of Cecilia's friends <laughs> didn't think badly of the partner of, mm. of, of this invisible man. They all were kind of surprised at her revelation that she was this victim. And because that's why they had that sit down scene, um, because they up until that point, she stayed there for two weeks and they don't really know what's the problem until she sits down and explains it. And I think that it sort of frustrates me that... Um, they, they, he, he literally looks like a monster in the first thing you see him, and I think it, I don't know, it just doesn't work. I think for me, I think it would have worked more, especially in the latter parts of the film, when she thinks that there's this this invisible man. Also, that scene's just confusing because it's like a lot of things happen in this film, and they don't, they don't feel realistic. And mm. if this film's supposed to feel grounded in some reality, then it's it just kind of leaves me with a lot of those huh, what moments. I think that the example with her revealing sort of, because I believe that comes after she finds out that he's committed suicide. So I understand there's an inherent fear she has of saying anything. And we see the visual fear when she's going out to get the mail and there's sort of a, they're sort of slowly pushing her out into the world again. So I think Mm -hmm. they established, and the whole thing with the punching through the window, I know what you mean, as Mm -hmm. in if the sister character is going to see that, then how come you're right? Is why she's surprised two, three weeks later. Yeah. When the domestic is sort of a bit more elaborated to her face. Yeah. But I think the punch also needed to happen so we can see. Oh shit! Okay, this is a. Okay, but then maybe you take out that other scene where it's like we get it. He's kind of like it. Just it just feels like well, at least the sisters basically. Like, can you tell me what happened? It's like I mean that dude just put a fist through your window. So yeah, you but, tell me he's a yeah. threat. I, well, I guess, I guess you know, you would want more elaborate, like, oh, shit, why did you just punch through my window? I think that's sort of more yeah. where we're going with that thing. For but, sure. Um, I mean, that's the thing. Even just visually, we always we, we got the, the glimpses of, and I could talk about it in highlight scenes a bit more, but how his house, even though it's this sort of technological beacon of of the rich, it sort of feels more like a prison to her with all the gates and all the cameras she has to turn mm-hmm. around and stuff. So I think that stuff's really well set up. Mm-hmm. And I think this film's really well set up in that regard. And 
how she ends up staying with her friend who I believe that's James and then his daughter Sydney which I found out because you're right we were both a little confused with the relationship it, it turns out they've just been lifelong friends yeah her and James so I was like okay well that's fair enough uh, and there is a bit of a bond with Sydney but one of the first things that happens and this goes to your point about character motivation because I think more so than the sister is Adrian's brother his motivation is so confusing. He's, he's the first thing we introduced to him where he offers her all of this money mm-hmm. after his death, uh, which, again, is a nice, great setup because when she takes the money, you're like, oh, great, this is going to be some sort of, uh, you know, guilt thing that she's taken the money even though she's accused this person of, you know, wouldn't she want to get away from that life? And that, yeah. like, that's a great setup that they can really play with later. They never really address the money again. They just do it to set the brother up as a guy who's, you know, criticizing her, like, oh, you're saying all this shit about my brother, how dare you? But then the next scene, all of a sudden, he hates his own brother too. Yeah, it feels like every time they make a visit to that office, he changes his character <laughs> motivation. It just changes. He does. And There's it's like really, a whole movie about him we don't know about. <laughs> it's really frustrating, actually. Yeah, you're, you're right. His character's kind of strange. And I think the character of James is kind of strange because he's got he's clearly this single dad. Mm. Um, but uh, they're, they're sort of... A lot of the characters, although they have a lot of screen time, they kind of feel paper thin. Like yeah, okay. almost. I don't really know who they are for most most part, with the exception of honestly, Cecilia does get a lot of of time. But I think, um, <laughs> and and it's quite clear on what what she wants. But a lot of her surrounding characters are just sort of. They're like, and this is her support network. This support network's only here just to watch it get systematically taken apart over time. Right. Um, and I don't know. It just like, but yeah, the the brother character is incredibly frustrating because every single scene, it almost feels like he has a completely different motivation, particularly in the latter parts of the film where... Yeah, he, when he, things come to light, so to speak. Well, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if you move along, like... Mm. As she starts to discover that there's indeed this presence and there are some really cool scenes, like the scene when she's out in the cold and there's the breath behind her. I mean, there's some really... That breath looked like... I mean, I get it, but that that was CGI breath that looked not good. Oh, no, it wasn't good. I get um, the... I like the idea, though, behind it. You're yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of kind of CGI confusion in this one. The idea of this guy is... <laughs> We all we're told is he's a really rich dude. He's a tech expert, and he's specialised in optics, which is basically just another way of saying, well, the Invisible Man suit is just a bunch of cameras. Put, put, put. Right. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, he just knows how eyes work, optics. So I guess like camera optics and stuff. So that's that's what his suit is. It's essentially just a big, big old camera. <laughs> well, it's thousands <laughs> of little cameras, but yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't mind the idea behind the suit, but it gets to the point where the suit feels almost like a Terminator body in well, later scenes. That's yeah. I mean, again, we're in spoilers, so it's it's good to come into. That's another thing. Again, I love the idea of the Invisible Man. I love the idea of him psychologically toying with this guy, and even the original fight scene where it's just her fighting with herself. Mm-hmm. Like that looks great. The way they do the sound work of his movements, the way the weight sort of presses into her skin when she's getting pulled. Mm. Like, it looks great. And I, I found a video where it is a guy just in a giant green suit yeah. throwing her around the table and stuff. And it looks great with the sound work and everything. But then we get to, you're right, the Terminator scene where now we have to believe that Adrian or whomever's in the mm. suit has all the, these spec op, you know, dealings with, oh, let's just kill a bunch of doctors and cops now. Yeah, they, like, they never <laughs> establish... That's the thing. He has... 
I feel like he honestly, he has not enough, ironically, he doesn't have a lot of character depth and it makes the plight feel a little bit more confusing. All we know is basically he's a horrible human being. And it's a shitty boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, literally. And it, I think, you know, even though I too enjoy the opening scene, it, up until the point where he literally puts the fist through the window, we don't really know why she's escaping. And I guess that's sort of the, the payoff. Like, she's she's escaping from this, like you said, it's framed more like a prison rather than this big mm. modern epiphany house, or like this, this monolith. And um, I think... It's weird because it's like the the film is a hundred minutes long, but sometimes they just shoo in character development because they forgot to do it in earlier scenes. Sometimes, I uh, mean, a particular one is the one where like when she returns to the house after that exact yeah. fight and discovers the well the invisible suit, the suit that makes you invisible. Yeah, and she just throws in a line of a password line a which, little ADR line which yeah. al- it almost yeah it does feel like an eight, like like they didn't have it recorded they took her to a, a sound stage and just got her to record it um where she just says the day we met and then punches the number in and it's like how romantic and it's just like you couldn't shoo that in like they were, like we, we've talked about it like a film like this did have some good setups and payoffs but it also had some bits that could have like subtle exposition that could have been slotted in another spot, and it mm. just never was. Well, it's interesting that example you use because, like, in my head, even though I get that they're trying to add a little more exposition to the relationship that they had, but to me, it was just was confusing in the sense that she's already, I believe, she put in a code or something to get into the house in the first yeah. place. So that automatically, okay, well then she must know the codes to go down into the. You know, down underground and stuff. Anyway, so particularly in the opening scene, she has a really adept knowledge of everything yeah, and how exactly. that house functions in order to get out of said house. So, also, why is the dog there? It's been like yeah. three, four weeks. Yeah, why is the dog still walking? There, there were a lot yeah. of these. Mo- I mean, obviously now <laughs> you could say that he was there the whole time and he was feeding the dog and looking after the dog, or the brother was. But then you need that's what you get an ADR line in. Oh, who's feeding you, buddy? Yeah. Now it's like, oh, well, there's a clue. There is something amiss going on. Now it's not just a plot hole than I'm thinking about for half an hour. Yeah. She and I think she does some things that are incredibly frustrating. Like they do do a really good setup with him taking photos of her while she sleeps. That's um, a great plan and payoff with the flashing light. But it's paid off yeah. completely wrong too because it's like she finds the fo- the phone in the 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 attic and then does nothing with it apart from sees the creepy photos taken. And right. then she's like... Like, she doesn't hold cool. the evidence that she keeps collecting. And that's the thing. She keeps finding things and evidence that could literally prove her right, but literally, like, constantly leaves. I think the big one is when she discovers the invisible suit but then leaves it at the house. Right. And it, obviously it's used in the final scene. <laughs> I mean, we're in spoiler conversation to eventually get her revenge, mm. but... I mean, at the end of the day, all all she did to get out of that house when he was there was push that door aside, and then she ran. I mean, and yeah. he's meant to be this dominating force, and he got pushed over. Like, yeah, because he goes on to kill twenty thousand cops in the next scene, <laughs> and that's the inconsistency. That, I hate that. I fucking hate. Yeah, that Yeah, and scene. ironically, that's the scene that's probably most synonymous with his upgrade cinematic shooting action style. Exactly, but that's the thing. There was subtle hints of it in the earlier fight scenes when it's just her basically play fight for herself. There's, I mean, you watch this behind the scenes. He's using those same 
automated rigs to get those quick camera motions and mm. they're more subtly done but it all fits but then now he has to go overly bombastic in the hallway with the policeman coming in in yeah. rows of two and it's just and because the suit's sort of injured so we can kind of see the outline of the suit but as you as you pointed out to me it's sort of very conveniently oop it works again when someone comes around the hallway oop yeah. it doesn't work again yeah. and it gets to the point where it's like she just looks like a crazy person he could walk away and she's still but then he just keeps killing people. Yeah, and it, it gets really Shit confusing, that man. scene, because it's a really good payoff. Like, she knows he's in there, and then she gets in the shower, and she's pretending to, like, slit yeah. her own wrist. And then, and she, then she gets him. And it's Great really... Moment. That's a good moment, but then it's followed up by... That's the thing. This film is a collection of really good... That's really smart. That's really smart. But then it's followed up by a why the fuck did that just happen? Yeah. it's it, it, And it, they're sprinkled between each other, like... The fact of the matter is, the way that that suit would work, you need every camera to work because what it's trying to do is it's trying to replicate the world around it. Mm. So if you break one of those cameras, the whole thing wouldn't work, or right. at least it would be very obvious to see who the person is because it can't replicate the whole room. That's the whole, you know, they've they've done that sort of style. I think they also did it actually in the Marvel, the Shield base that's invisible they use reflections of the sky okay oh uh, yeah yeah they do up, um, yeah up in the thing. so it's that mirror thing and and i know you're getting into like oh well now you're just being nitpicky but it's like the fact of the matter is if it's if he wants to like focus on this big tech thing he needs to be accurate sometimes with this stuff mm. you can't just be like and that that particularly <laughs> those latter scenes when it is malfunctioning it's cinematically malfunctioning it's yeah. malfunctioning at the moments where it's like oh she's following him we need to see where he's going have him appear just for a second and then disappear and right. then reappear and then disappear and particularly in that scene in the car park it's like such bullshit because it's raining too and i'm like i'm pretty sure that's an electrical suit i'm not sure it'd be weatherproof but that's that might be getting it i little. think for me like i don't really care about the the thematics of the suit or whatever and uh, in fact the the scene in the basement when she froze the paint on that suit as the first time you get a glimpse maybe like an hour that was actually generally <laughs> and he washes it off straight away well my, my takeaway from that <laughs> shot was like oh that was because re- it's the first time you get any visual proof yeah. of his that was a cool moment but then when you go back to the hallway when she outsmarts him, she pretends to cut herself, she outsmarts and gets him, that that should be the definitive damaging point where it's like, okay, now she has the upper hand because he's he should have one strength and that's to be invisible. Yeah. He should just be... And I get he's domestic and violent, but that's the thing. He's just violent against this woman who's he's basically in control of. He's not violent against a bunch of cops. Yeah. He shouldn't be that... He shouldn't be a Terminator. Exactly it, it, right. That, that's it. And it's like... His power comes from his lording ability of money and power, and I mean, I you know, ironically, this sort of is that sort of Christian gay, Christian gray mentality turned on its head. But it really frustrates me in this situation because if he's this big tech expert, essentially he's a nerd. So why is he this six foot three, Jake (laughs) Gyllenhaal knockoff looking bloke Uh, who's honestly like she even says like she says she's like why. Why me? You met me at a party once, and it's like... Yeah. And at the end of the day, I I agree. What Like, I, I'm sorry. It's like, he can be rich and controlling and dominating, but his power comes with his money and his brain, not his physical strength. Mm. Like, And it would have been a way more profound thing had he been this sort of less athletic, well, but that- dominating through his sort of... Well, his own narcissistic intelligence and, you know... <laughs> 
his power exactly that, being invisible, not yeah. being a Terminator. Once he loses the ability to be invisible, he shouldn't be That's when as the power shift should happen. Exactly. You know, and that's really frustrating because that scene, that scene paints him out like he's a Navy SEAL. Yeah. And I know he has the advantage of being invisible, but he shouldn't be strong in the sense that he shouldn't be like... There are bits in that where he literally looks... He and just it, straight up breaks bones and stuff in that yeah. scene. Like, it's it's ridiculous. Like, and he does, like, the the, the, like the, the, the moves that, like, army people... Like, you see in a John Wick movie. Yeah, exactly. Except, like, John Wick's, like, a... a legit- I mean, he gets the guy to shoot himself in the knee. Yeah, or, like, there's, like, like, that weird cross-shock thing with, like, choke. Oh, with the throat, yeah. Yeah, the throat punching. It basically should be what we're physically capable of, but if we were invisible, Zeke, we would be able to do more than we can, but if we weren't invisible... There should have been a lot more ball-kicking. <laughs> no, but you're right. It's like it shouldn't be a Navy SEAL. It shouldn't be a Terminator. Yeah, it's... and it really it frustrates me because like you bring up the paint scene, we're like, oh, well, that's the first glimpse of him, but then it's followed up with him washing it off, and I feel like there could have been. It's a little conf- uh, inconsistent sometimes. I feel like with like when he's able to be seen, either in those scenes. I mean, we bring up the fire extinguisher one. Really good example of a. Mm. Put up and pay off. I Unfortunately, it. I used it. in the wrong scene completely. <laughs> well, I mean, um, it got used eventually. It's fine. Yeah, but uh, that was really clever. You know, people do have fire extinguishers. Maybe not the industrial grade big one they had, but um, they do have but them. What, in their I caught it when they used it on the thing. I was like, I bet they're going to use that to get a visual on him. And it took them a long time to do it, but they did. Yeah, and like, and yeah. then it ends up being the brother, and he gets four gunshots, and he's still standing. Like again, Terminator. You're right. It's like, is that suit bulletproof too? Clearly not, because he dies later in that scene. But like, and then that comes back to the brother character being so. V- yeah, can we now? So. It was the brother character. Here's the thing. I can't even say it all along because I don't know. So we know that the brother, both brothers, Adrian and his brother, who I, I guess his name's Tom, if I, I recall. So. Um, we know that they were working together on some capacity and there mm-hmm. was sort of a fake out that he was locked in his own house. So yeah, this can kind of explain the whole, oh, the house was maintained, the dog was still running around, but it do- it, I don't know, you can't get away with it because they never really address it in that way. No, it's sort of a quick wrap and we don't really know when they swapped because we are made to be proven in the, the final scene that mm. uh, the boyfriend, Adrian, definitely was involved. Yeah, because he has that line. He has... Gotcha, or, or surprise. surprise, that's it. Yep. And he says it the same way. And I think that's the, like that was one thing I turned around. I felt like he needed to talk more, but then you outlined that that kind of would have taken away from it, and that's what makes that line so uh, meaty. And it's cool, because yeah. the one time he says a word, she remembers it, and then we as the audience are clued in that he definitely was involved, which means, yeah, yeah. he faked out his own kidnapping. Um, we don't know when this switch happened. Um, yeah, we don't know if he was the one fighting in the hallway or was it the brother? Um, yeah. when did it switch? Um, I think he does say another line, not just surprise. He says one in the car park. I'm pretty sure. Um, when he's strangling Elizabeth Moss. So I'm convinced they swapped when the brother was driving over to the house, but it's not made clear at all, or at least even hinted. Yeah, there's no real explanation. And that's the thing. The fact that you're bringing up these theories of, oh, then maybe they swapped here or what they happened They would have had here, to have swapped. It's, it's like the he film was, doesn't explain any of that. He was the one in the asylum. Mm. And you know that because in the car park, he speaks to her. And it's his voice, the one who said surprise. Yeah. 
So they must have swapped when she drove over to the house. But they don't make it clear and they just are like, oh, well, we don't, we need someone to die in this scene. Oh, we'll make it the brother. <laughs> but it's so inconsistent and I feel like some people just really completely forget how, like, they just, they needed him in that last scene but they also needed him in the next scene and they needed him to die and the coots and it's just a big old mess. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's just that twist. It just becomes a little problematic, because you're right. That sort of the 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 actual the way that that was all orchestrated. It's it is confusing. It is tricky, and it's funny because I actually think the film ends mostly strongly. I mean that scene, and it was tough because it was like, oh god, why is she going back to him? Or, which again, that all plays into the analog fine. Mm. Um, my only real issue with the ending, or even the fact that you know she kills him, takes the suit, is the fact that uh, what's his name is James. there at all? James, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the whole agree- agreement comes from wearing the wire, but I guess it comes back to uh, he didn't really need to be in that scene. It doesn't feel... It sort of felt... But that's what I mean. I feel like he, the secondary characters surrounding Cecilia was so secondary that they really had no place in the narrative other than just being the people that the Invisible Man fucks with. Well, yeah, to be that reactionary thing. And, and and his climactic scene should have come with, uh, honestly, the office scene, where it's like, basically, they, they both can't agree on, uh, like, if Adrian's going to get off, because obviously the cops discover mm, him. Okay. Um, obviously, the brother was the... Tom was the one who attacked uh, James and, a, and his daughter. Yeah. So, basically, he's like, well, it's all going to go on Tom, and Adrian's going to get away with it, but... Like you said, he's okay. kind of that could have been his sign-off scene. I'm sorry. Well, now, well, now that I'm thinking about it, because they do have that conversation. Oh, well, it's not Adrian's fault, because you know that Tom's dead on my on my uh, my hallway. So I guess in terms to complete the narrative, where she has to prove to them that Adrian was this abusive but, boyfriend, but he, I guess she, he, he never does. She never proves it, because no, but the, with the, the with the when he says surprise, yeah, that's James doesn't know about that. So she doesn't yeah, but, prove it. She, the th- phone would still be up in the attic, though. No, I don't think so. Why not? But, but Why wouldn't it, be up it there? still doesn't mean James <laughs> needs to be in that scene, though. Because we know as the audience, but James, that doesn't affect anything to do with like the criminal case against uh, Adrian. That, that he says, surprise, and then she goes in the other room and then slices his throat. That we as the audience go, oh, okay, well, he was in on it. But there's still no, like in-world proof that Adrian did all those things. I I feel like she could muster something up from that recording, but I, I, I'm actually not even that fussed about James being there. In the, I think the only thing I really don't like is that she straight up tells him or alludes to him that, yeah, I just did die, I killed him. <laughs> she should have straight up played innocent, maybe had the little little evil smile at re- the end, really, and then ended I really that. liked that she made the phone call and then like completely sombered up in that scene at the same time, like she's panicking, and then right. as... As Adrian's bleeding out on the floor, she just like switches characters as soon as the phone call ends. Yeah. With the, with the... I just I don't like that she told James that she killed him. Well, she, yeah, she, she heavily have... implies it for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I don't, I don't know. I think logistically, this film felt very uh, confusing in parts, and honestly, felt sometimes like it was still in its first or its second draft. It felt like at times. It I definitely, like... yeah, needed a bit more refinement in that. Wait, I think the direction's great. Yeah. I think he's a great director, mm-hmm. but that script, 
it just it took it in places where it, you're right because Universal approached him, mm. it very much felt like, hey, the guy from Upgrade is doing this film. Yeah. So now you're getting these signature action scenes, which work in some areas, but completely do not work in other areas. I think that's where, where the issues yeah, sort of I lie think we, there. We, we've got to look at um, sort of things like in a film like this, you need to look at logistics in order for it to make sense, and then you can focus more on plot devices. So I, I know I've been incredibly, with this review, I've been incredibly focused on sort of the in-world logistics and how they are very frustrating at times. Mm. You know, we brought up the Terminator thing, the suit, and how it should work. But the thing is, in this sort of pref- like this type of film, or at least the film that we now wanted, you need to focus on that stuff because that's where the holes start. You know, he's invisible, but he's not corporeal, and there feels mm. like scenes where it's like, even with him being invisible, you know, he he'd still be touching people, like particularly in those claustrophobic spaces. Like there are times where I'm just like, how is no one? brushing by him or feeling a pre- and you do feel a presence of someone in a room like you can't yeah and that's the whole thing that's literally the whole preference she mm. feels this invisible presence because the reality is when a person's in a room even if you can't see them you can kind of feel them in yeah. a room from her point of view though they do establish she's very paranoid from the get-go yeah so you can get I'm that talking she about other characters up though other I, don't know. I think I think that restaurant scene where unfor- uh, her sister dies Emily yeah is and she's framed for the murder. I actually really like that scene a lot. I don't like her as a character. I yeah. think she's just as bad as Tom in terms of character motivation. Like that, her just, she getting her, angry over that email. Her accepting that email and be like, okay, my lifelong sister just, okay, okay, screw you, I'm done. Like yeah. that doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. But I like the scene in the restaurant. I like the way that, like, the plot completely twists with that, with that fro mm. slide. And I like the fact that where it's done... Where well, she's like, oh, I'm safe. Place. I'm safe in a public place. And then the Invisible Man's like, <laughs> you moron. I guess. I love I that. I just think it's the logistics of it. Maybe if it had been a wide... It felt like a very crowded place. It, maybe if it had just been a... And I get that's part of the thing where she feels safe because it's a crowded place. Mm. But she should have just... It didn't have to be, like, bustling, I guess. I feel like there should have just been... It felt like a scene that was very kind of claustrophobic. And it just logistically, I just don't see how he could have got there without mm. someone bumping into... Imagine how much yeah. dodging he would have had to do in that scene. Just crazy. Yeah, he would have been, like, flipping around shit. Yeah. I mean, hey, I'm pretty good at dodging and not touching people at clubs, so... <laughs> <What are you? laughs> um, so, I, I don't know. Sorry, I, yes. I, I, I can't help but pick that stuff because that stuff's important in the context mm. of this film. I like the premise, uh, and I like some of the... When he creeps around in the... Like you said, like that kitchen scene where he turns on the stove and stuff it's something like the way they shoot that kitchen and that kitchen is a really large kitchen he could easily make his way around the room but it also like i think you've just got to establish things like oh is is the proof is the is the suit soundproof too because he can talk did we ever find out that nope if it was soundproof he can talk through it apparently but his footsteps aren't heard and even if you're invisible you still make sound like, mm. and I think sometimes... I'm if li- they establish, like, if it's a consistent thing, if they pick one here, they make sound or doesn't, and they, they're consistent with that, then it's it's fine, I guess, but... Yeah. And he makes sounds with the things he interacts, like when he turns the heat up on the, the mm. stove, it makes the clicking sound, you know? Yeah. So but I guess, I guess that makes... Because you can't not make sound from other devices. 
Okay. Just because he can't make footsteps or he can control lack of footsteps doesn't mean if he turns a phone on that the phone's not going to make any noise. I get that. Yeah. Tricky one, though. But there, you're right. There's a lot of logistics. I'm more in the line with, like, just the plot stuff. And okay. it's like, again, I when think... she gets the money, like, that goes nowhere. She gives Sydney some money, but then, like, that could have easily been a nice guilt trip where she learns to not accept that money. Mm. And then that could somehow play into how much abuse she's getting from the... Yeah. I don't know, man. I think um, I also have my... Yeah, the, the plot problems, like the confusion with the brother switch is really weird. Uh, the, the sort of... T- uh, the Terminator mm-hmm. serial killer nerd, um, <laughs> which is all kinds of confusing. Um, uh, that's and awesome. I think that's my... The big thing is that it's like, if someone wasn't happy with my view and it's like, oh, it's a dumb horror movie, just enjoy it. Then I'm like, well, then don't tell me it's profound. Then you either get to say it's, mm. and like you, like you said, you, that can be both. But there are horror films out there with excellent sort of stories. I really enjoyed Halloween. So, yeah. Is there a big message in Halloween? No. <laughs> <laughs> Still a really fun movie. Uh, but I mean, I go. I mean, The Exorcist is my favorite horror film of all time. Yeah, and and just stuff, because there's... it's so layered from yeah. a filmic standpoint, from a plotting standpoint. And, yeah, from a thematic standpoint. So, you can do it, guys. You can do it. Yeah, but you can also... I mean, you can go the dumb slasher route, too. You just got to stick to the dumb slasher route. Yeah. You can't... That's can't what, this film... It was, it, it, the premise was too clever to be a dumb slasher film. Exactly. So... Which means you can't have upgrade scenes in the middle of it. Mm. You know? You can't do those types of scenes. Or at least, if you're going to have a scene where he just hacks and slashes, don't make it that he's this combat master, because we've never been told about that. Yeah. And don't make him look like a Bruce Wayne knockoff. Make him look more like a Jesse Eisenberg-looking bloke. Sorry, Jesse Eisenberg. That was one of my the things I didn't like about Upgrade, though. The tech villain was, like, too Jesse Eisenberg for me. I guess. It might have been a response to that, if anything. Maybe. I feel like there, there needs to be a middle ground sort of thing. Like like we've said earlier in this review, I think his power comes from his his wealth and his intelligence and his control over those sort of yeah. things, not his physical strength. I mean, imagine if we're watching, again, we're doing a Marvel reference, imagine if Iron Man, like, loses the suit, but then you can still fight Thanos. Yeah. It's like, that's kind of the equivalent of what we're saying. Yeah. Because exactly. it's like, well, then why is the character interesting? Exactly. If so. he's the same in costume as he is out. <laughs> yeah. I mean... It's it's funny that we I made a joke to you in the final scene, which is the first real time we get to see uh, Adrian kind of in well lit circumstances, sort of like yeah, as in that this, final scene, in that you dinner can see sequence. him properly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it I really said, does take that long to see him properly. You're right. Yeah, most Jesus of it's either Christ. dark or yeah, very or concealed. he's dead in a newspaper or something. Yeah, <laughs> and I I think um, not even going to go into the fact of how they managed to fake a whole death, but okay. Um, ah, whatever. Yeah, we, it's I'll, turned into whatever now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's kind of funny because I, I remember saying to you, I was like, he really looks like Jake Gyllenhaal. And ironically, I actually think someone like Jake Gyllenhaal, like a more Nightcrawler-looking fella, would be the would way be to go with casting. Okay. Not, okay. He does, like, he looks like Jake Gyllenhaal, buff Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. Like, like, he was like... He's like one... <laughs> like, this guy's like three three good movies away from being another superhero, basically. Like, I don't mind his look. I really don't mind that, because it's like, you can have... I mean, I've, I've heard stories of, like, 
people working with writers who look like gym enthusiasts, but they they're just little nerdy writers sort of thing. Like it's fine. I just again, but it I, takes I away would, from his power. It takes away from the story. Yeah, I would rather him punch through windows and act like an angry, violent boyfriend than be a fucking CIA operator. Yeah. So that's I'm, fair. Yeah. They also, had it and then they ruined it. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't work for the guy. Like something something that powerful would not just exist in someone's house too, by the way. <laughs> ah, he's Tony Stark, I guess. I don't know. Maybe. There's a lot of allowances to make for this film. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's a few. I, look, to, to sum it up, I think there's some great ideas in this film, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is we're, we're nitpicking out a lot of plot stuff that really just hindered our experience. And that's the thing. If you have that many hindrances that ruin your experience, then it's going to affect your overall view of the film. Yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't going into it. Like, this makes it sound like I was going we into this excited. film. Yeah, I, like, I was scared. But <laughs> You were scared. Yeah, you really it really wasn't even movies. that scary. And that's the other thing. Here's the big one, right? Don't don't use sound to manipulate fear. It's the lazy. It's mm. it's the least scary scary thing you can do. Like, yeah, it makes my heart jump when you screech a score at me. And also, some of the we talked about some of the score. It felt overly cinematic and over the top. Sometimes. Oh, the, the credits music. It's insane. We were just sitting in a theater, being like, "What the? It's like so overly orchestral." And yeah. Like the music within the film's fine, but it's just right at the end they just went so. Turn it yeah. up to 11, boys. I, uh, like, we had just <laughs> watched a that. three-hour masterpiece. Um, and I think that's my thing. It's like, if you have to use... And It Chapter 2 did the exact same thing. So mm. don't get... don't get, And we loved It, too. Yeah. So it's like, when It Chapter 2 came around, we were really excited and then let down by that film. And this film was the exact same. I'm Like, like I said, I brought up the fact that the last couple of years, February, March, has been a really good time for horror films. They've... Mm. We, you know, we talked about The Quiet uh, quiet Place and we talked about, yeah, Get Out and obviously Us last year, which we all walked out with ranging from positive to near perfection, depending on which member of that uh, panel we had that week. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's why coming into this time of year and, you know, seeing all the positive reviews, I was like, yeah, we're going to get another one of those kind of think piece horrors, which it's like, it's scary, but it's scary for the right reasons, I guess. Not the, oh, it's really, it, the music's all died down and we're just in diegetic music. Get ready to hit the, the mm. hit it to 11 just yeah, to scare Yeah, when she, when the she kicks that dog bowl in the first scene, that, that sound is not an authentic sound for what she's kicking. And I get that. I, I'm a yeah. big fan of them s- s- sneaking in like really weird sound effects and diegetically mm. motivated. I mean, Breaking Bad does it a million times. Yeah, like the sound of a ticking talk has, uh, clock has like uh, machine gun bullets, and it's like I love when they do that stuff, but it didn't work in this film. Because nope. you're right, it's weirdly overly loud jump scares, and I don't care if they didn't do it visually in this film; they do it sonically, and that's just as worse. You know, I, I almost would have preferred tackling this film. You know, you you talked about the 1934 version, and honestly, that premise sounds kind of more interesting. What they did with the Invisible Man in that one. I think, like I said to you walking out, and I still kind of stand by this, I actually would have liked um, him to be a threat that's more physical, I guess. Like, he manages to successfully sabotage and destroy her life, even at a distance. Um, Like, in times, maybe he's invisible sometimes, but I don't know, I would have liked more, like, the paranoia, like... (laughs) 
you know, it's like that first scene when she goes out to the mailbox and there's mm. a guy that's running up behind her. Yeah. Really clever use of sort of paranoia and shots. Maybe I would have liked more sort of him systematically sabotaging her life just because he's got the money to do so, I guess. Well, that's what he was doing for the first half of this mm. film. There's always some pretty lame ways of sabotaging her life, no, well, too. He's, sabota- he, he's sabotaging the friendships with, with her friends and her family, with the sister email, mm. the money. I don't think they did enough with the money. That was a real missed opportunity, yeah. but whatever. What's well, the he, point where he literally millions just has, to, of dollars. He has to hit the daughter just to kind of sever that relationship, and I think that kind of... That sort of... I don't mind that. That's fine. Okay. You can slap children. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you ready to move into highlight scenes, buddy? Um, absolutely. Again, I can't reiterate enough, but that opening scene is actually really excellent. That kind of really got me excited for the rest of the film, unfortunately. But again, just it's visual storytelling. We start in this girl. We have these questions. Oh, she's turning cameras around. She's sneaking around the bag. It's it's that sort of thing. And again, it feels like a prison. But it's like, yeah, you get that cool sort of visual echo. The diegetic waves crashing against the, the rocks. Yeah, exactly. Just adds to that sort of... But then there's that sort Eeriness. of, it, it takes it further because now it's like, I feel like I understand the relationship without having seen any of that relationship. Because I did get the sense of, okay, well, regardless of the, the specifics of like feeling entrapped, we see that she's feeling entrapped in this prison-like building. So it's like, okay, well, that gives me a, a rough idea of their relationship, even though she vocalizes it a few scenes later. Mm. But I don't know, it's just really, no, I really, really clever. I really enjoy the opening scene. It's probably up there with one of my highlight scenes also. But um, there are frustrating things even in that scene. Like I said, the the sister reaction to the, the fist going through the window, even though that is a very scary thing, this man sprinting through right. the, um That did make me jump a little bit in the right way <laughs> um, and sort of like leads on his possessive nature. But for the sister to pretend like she had never seen any sign of, of her boyfriend being this sort of lording presence then to me, and like... I mean, there's a good chance they never even met properly. I don't know. It sounds like they've dated for a very long time. No, I mean the sister and Adrian. Like, there's a relational gap where her sister wouldn't have told her about the abuse until way out. And that's a real... Yeah, but sometimes you you can at least sense if something's wrong, if it's your sibling. Like, I feel like... Yeah, depends on how much they talk, though. Yeah, well, that's it. We never really know. We don't really establish how strong their sisterly connection is, apart yeah. from she's the one. And I feel like in that scene, it actually would have made way more sense if James had bailed her out, but then I guess James would have been able to fight back, so I guess it wouldn't have worked. That's um, true, actually, um, yeah. You kind of need the both females sort of in there to to keep it at that level. I feel like I would have preferred if if maybe she had a friend that was... Maybe a third friend, potentially. No, oh, there's enough characters. <laughs> to no, no, there is, there is enough. You know, yeah. We don't, yeah. Or maybe, maybe a tiny bit too many. Maybe potentially, yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely. There is like one frustrating bit, the bit where she's about to leave and she <laughs> successfully got out. And there's always that one thing that sets everything off, and it's oh, the dog. The, and the I don't dog. know why she thought she could run away with the dog. Um, I, I don't get it. No, she let the dog free as well. So there was kind of that almost weird connection they had with the dog all locked up in chains and she's letting him free I mean, or her, was, I don't know. He was pretty chill. He's a, he's a dog. No, I mean, but, I mean, he ran off immediately after being free. And then came back in the yeah, latest. Yeah, then came back <laughs> with no food and just chilled, just chilled a, out. He's just know. a... He's a dog. All right, what's your, what's your highlight scene, Zeke? 
Um, I'd probably say, yeah, that's definitely up there. Um, I really like some of the subtlest, like the, like you said, that opening fight is really cool. Um, right, the fair, yeah, the first real confrontation. It's kind of, it all, I think it might be one shot, or at least a lot of it's some very long takes. Long takes for sure. Um, I'm sure there's a few cuts. But I really like the, 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 the cool things, like the plates breaking over their heads. That's or, awesome. That's what I'm talking about. That yeah, shit's cool. That's what I want to see more of, not the... Terminator level one, two, three, seven. Dun, 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 dun. Um, especially <laughs> I, that last act of the film, I think, is what left me really frustrating. The switch from act two to three, when, and I think that comes with the jellyfish scene. <laughs> um, the jellyfish scene? I'm forgetting. When uh, Elizabeth Moss calls a Tom a spineless jellyfish. <laughs> spineless jellyfish. <laughs> and, and, and you audibly went, what in the cinema? <laughs> <laughs> um, There's like a hundred other spineless things you could call them, but a uh, spineless that's jellyfish. That's definitely the low point, and I think from that point onwards, the film is just frustrating. I was probably on board until about that scene. The spineless and jellyfish. The spineless jellyfish scene was the... There's actually a... Re- and the funny enough is, and we've been really lamb- lambing on how bad Tom's character is, but there was a scene, the second scene, we're with Tom... Where she has that, he builds this rapport up with with Elizabeth Moss, um, as Cecilia and and James, talking about how this abusive make and any horrible, sense. <laughs> and it's a really like well acted scene. But yeah, it it doesn't make any sense because the first scene he's like, oh yes, you accused my brother of all these awful things. It's just again, that's it's a collection of good scenes that was, are all sequentially. Out he should have stayed on the defense. He shouldn't have been like, oh. My brother wasn't. He's like, no, he should have. Always, because that's the thing. I I was not looking forward to the next time they meet because he's always going to have this sort of accusational approach to it. But then he just keeps changing his whatever. Mm. I'm done. Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> We're done with this film. I really I'm calling I it. <laughs> wish they had gone more with that route. That was the scene that was a highlight in just a scene sense, not in a story sense. Okay. And I wish they had gone for the more empathetic brother approach that would have eventually led to his death in a. Good way, rather than a the like in the sense that his like his brother mm. comes back, but then it comes back to how do you cover up the death? There's I'm like calling said, it. More I'm calling ho- it. You're calling it. <laughs> the Invisible Man is currently out in cinemas near you. See if you dare. Well, you can't see I'll... it. <laughs> Dad jokes aside, Jake, what <laughs> is new in cinemas this week? Nothing. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Um, well, it's funny because, yeah, A Quiet Place Part 2 was meant to come out this week. It got delayed. Um, and again, because of the pre-records, I know that we do give out many disclaimers, but uh, next week I'm going to say that Mulan is out in cinemas and it is not. So just a heads up for that. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, uh, going back to The Quiet Place, that is Hoyts and Luna and events. Uh, we have The Current War, which sees Electricity Titans Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse, who were played by Benedict Cumberbatch and Michael Shannon, compete for the American market in this tense period drama. It's out at Hoyt's Lunar and Events this Thursday the 19th. The film came out in 2017, apparently. Oh, really? Yeah. That's how long it's taken to get a wide Jesus. Actually, apparently you know what? not good. What? It's not apparently, good? Apparently not good. Well, it's not got good. It's not certified fresh. It's like 37% of Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, jeez. That's not great at all. Nope. That sounds a cool premise. Yeah. I'd be on board for the, just the, the casting, but yeah, like I said, apparently came out in, quote, 2017. Well, as a self-proclaimed capitalist league, <laughs> I do like my stories about the American marketplace. 
Uh, yes, that's true. Thirty-one percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh Jesus! And fifty-five percent on Metacritic. So, well, current war. If you want to catch it, it's coming here finally. That's the thing. We're getting all these really old films now. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that's it. That is a clever title, though. The current war. Yeah. <laughs> that is a clever title. First Love releases this Friday, the twentieth, at Event Cinemas. Japanese director uh, Takishi Mike sets up a story that takes place over a single night in Tokyo as a self-confident young boxer and a prostitute get caught up in a drug smuggling plot involving organized crime, corrupt cops, and a female assassin. So if you're into your Japanese films, that one's for you. And I think that's also sort of, it's been out in J- Japan for a little while. It's coming here. So uh, that one's only at events. I really had to find that one because mm. the only film I could find any sort of relevance for was A Current War. So, I don't know. Anyway, that's what's in cinemas. Uh, it's going to be a very dry month or two or year or life. We might all be dead by the time we come back. Wow, so you've been a positive man on this episode, I'm just Mr. being Diego. realistic, you know. This virus is getting us all, Zeke. Well. It's coming for us. We're not watching any of those films <laughs> next week on the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what I thought about? What? Because I was like, oh, that's a clever way of being like, oh, all the films we you know dismissed or whatever. But it's like, I actually have no way... To direct you out of that quote, because even if we're watching a film that comes out that week, I'm not going to say it until after all of those. Yes. So no matter what I say or do, you're always going to get away with it, but we're not watching any of those this week. <laughs> so there's no way around this quote. I need to figure it out. You'll figure it out. Episode 66. Yep. I have a few weeks to exactly to work around you. But Jake, what are we watching? For our first pre-record next week, we're watching The Princess Bride. The war the land gave Humperdinck the right to choose his bride. The fabric will make the prince suspect the Gildarians have abducted his love. I never say anything about killing anyone. I just happened to look behind us and something is there. He's obviously seen us with the princess and must therefore die. Pick up one of those rocks, get behind the boulder. The minute his head is in view, hit it with the rock! I was not a sportsman there. A fairy tale adventure about a beautiful young woman and her one true love. He must find her after a long separation and save her. They must battle the evils of the mythical kingdom of Florin to be reunited with one another. Mm, there you go, 1987. Mm, and directed by Rob Reiner. Oh, what a king. What a king. What a king of the 80s. King of the 80s, that's how you put it. Um, looking forward to this film. have not watched this film since, well... Before the pre-recorded podcast. <laughs> well, yeah, you I go back 11. a long way with this film, though. Yeah, and this will be your first watch Watch. That's film. it. This will be my authentic reaction to the film. And our first guest of the week is going to be Perry Watson. So this was her choice for the film of the week on the Cinema Sideshow. <laughs> no worries. Well, I'm looking forward to talking about The Princess Bride next week on the show, Jake. Thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jay. And we'll catch you next week with The Princess Bride. On guard!